Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? Hello, 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 survivors. This is Gina. Welcome to our 50th, 50th episode. Uh, today we're going to listen back to some of our favorite interviews, some highlights from conversations that we've just adored having. Thank you to all of you who have been supporting us along the way, and I hope you enjoy a look back at some great highlights. How are you? What's going on on the East Coast? Oh, uh, <laughs> how are you doing? You know what? It, so it's not a like in your twenties. It's a wild ride, right? It's like a roller coaster. It's twists and turns, and your stomach hurts, and you feel like exhilarated, and you feel okay. It's in middle age. It's like a um, like you're just riding one of those trolleys. Yes, that goes kind of slow, and there's or like in San Francisco, and there's still hills and sometimes it is very beautiful but a lot of times you're just right. slowly right. crawling towards your own death oh my god <laughs> my problem is well to preface this to say this is this is um did i ever tell you the story about how i ruined someone's surprise wedding <laughs> so i have a problem i cannot keep a secret like that like when the secret stakes are high i, I if you're ever if never so my friend this is crazy so my friend my friend's fia, uh, a boyfriend called me and said hi i am surprising sarah in a, a wedding she knows we're going on an adventure we're going on a hot air balloon ride and we're getting married in the hot air balloon. Oh God. And oh, can God. you come and be the witness? And I was, first of all, I'm scared of any height. I, I, I said, okay. I said, fine. So he, this was so crazy. So I kept it. I was like, okay, here it comes. And I was like seeing her and you know, we're not friends anymore. Shockingly. Uh, <laughs> so I, I were, Okay, beans. So I made it. She's supposed to dress up. She doesn't know what's happening. But the guy who does the hot air balloon is the minister. So he also serves as the minister. It's a whole thing people do. Okay, fine. But you need a witness. And so I'm the witness. I'm like, this is this is terrible. So we make it. She's in a dress, like a fancy dress. I'm in a fancy whatever outfit. We have to drive to the desert, right? So we're in the car. And I, I literally said, we're going, I remember it's, it's hot, it's windy, she's excited, nobody, you know, did, her, um, I sat in the back seat and her fiance or boyfriend sat in the front seat because I don't know why she wanted to talk or something. I don't remember why we were both in the back seat. And I just go, I can't believe you're about to get married in a hot air. <laughs> and she looked like this and he... We don't know if he, I'm sure he, it was really windy. So I'm not sure if he heard, but she heard and she looked at me and I was like, well, what the, what are you doing? 
lot of people really still think that you could be sitting at Schwab's, you know, <laughs> drinking a phosphate. <laughs> and some guys say, oh, wow, this girl's got talent. You can tell by her sweater. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. And then he gets into his uh, Studebaker and drives down to uh, Mayberry. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> buying in you know obviously. oh yeah it's the biggest i mean when i found out that that kylie jenner made billions of dollars from selling ugly ass lipstick i was like wait what what's what's what did i do wrong i guess well, i wasn't born a yeah. kardashian no, you weren't part, born a Kardashian in Calabasas, wherever the hell they live. But um, the other thing is, my niece wanted to contribute to her GoFundMe to make her a billionaire. And I said, if you contribute to her GoFundMe to put her over the billionaire mark, I will no longer speak to you. Wait, wait, wait. Hold, hold She the had phone. a GoFundMe. GoFundMe to make her the first billionaire teenager or whatever that heck it was. Yes, she had. Someone started GoFundMe to put her over the edge. Oh, not she didn't start it. Somebody started no, it for her. Some crazy teenage girl started it to try to get make her a billion. I mean, this is what we're dealing with here. This is the. This is what we're up against. This is what we're up against. So, are you shocked that that Mitch McConnell and whoever dickety dick dicks are trying to? No, we've got this. We've got this going on, Gina. Wait, I, I'm sorry. I, I have to go back to this GoFundMe. Okay. So did it make money? Yes. Did it work? Yes. It put her over the edge. But did it go to the girl who made the GoFundMe? No, it went to Kylie Jenner. But how, if I wanted to start a GoFundMe. <laughs> for someone else. For, for, for Meryl Streep. <laughs> normally hopefully Meryl Streep would say you know what I'm gonna pass and I'm gonna donate the money but I think and I am not I am not 100% we'd have to do the fact checking on this I think that it put her over the edge and I'm not sure she donated look I don't want to get sued by the Kardashians but all I'm saying is it was like this fad thing that caught on make Kylie Jenner a billionaire yeah, but okay, you're missing an essential thing. <laughs> you're okay. missing an essential thing that I can't wrap my brain around. Okay. It's probably really obvious to everybody but me. If I wanted to start a fund, GoFundMe for Meryl Streep, how on earth would I ever tell Meryl Streep or get the money to her? I'm not going to like go to the white pages and look up Meryl Streep and then be like, hey, I, I'm raising a bunch of cash for you could i have your bank account number or what i mean i don't know how go gofundme works but right right i so think it's it because going to this girl i maybe it was and i kind of hope it was but but it but i think it went to her company i think they they like i i don't know all i know is that it was a huge a social movement about, I would say five years ago, maybe four years ago. I don't know. And my niece was like, I'm going to donate. And I was like, Oh my God, no, you're not. I, I will lay my body down in this water tower place. We were in the water tower <laughs> place in Chicago shopping. And I said, I will lay down on this floor and not leave in, in, in front of American girl until you promise me you're not going to donate. What has happened? 
god. Well, we've learned two things here. <laughs> <laughs> At least. Right. Number one, Kylie Jenner is a cult leader. Oh yeah, yeah. The cult of beauty, the cult of personality, yes. Yes, and yes. It could really just be the cult about her lips. Because yeah. it does seem to be kind of all about her lips. It is. It's true. It's true. And additionally, I am now realizing <laughs> that probably what happened with that GoFundMe is that Kylie Jenner paid somebody to start oh. that. She says, I'll give you 10% of whatever you raise. Because I've read things about those people that they don't like they don't pay their nannies or they, oh, they stiff right. people out of money. They're the, they're the kind of rich people who get rich because they're real cheap oh, with everybody no. else, not except themselves, you know, it's oh, disgusting. What are we doing? I mean, I mean, that is, that is, um, see, I, my logic, my logic train stops. I never, I never <laughs> like go the full mile of, oh my gosh she probably did pay this person as a publicity stunt and to get the money, but like the whole thing. Oh God. See, you really go to the dark, dark, dark side, which I appreciate because I'm sort of like, well, whatever. It's just a bunch of kids having fun. It's kind of, it's kind of jacked up, but like, it's not the worst. And you're and now I'm like, Oh, it's the worst thing. That's ever happened. <laughs> it's the worst thing. It's the worst thing. Okay, so I did my monologue. My monologue was from a Nikki Silver play. I don't remember which one, and I don't, and I think it was totally inappropriate. But um, it's just crazy, like a crazy hysterical woman. I, I, not good. So I do my monologue, and I'm totally nervous, and I feel totally um, less than, and just not. Um, I don't feel right. I feel <laughs> wrong. Everything feels wrong about me. So after, after that, I, what I, I just immediately start drinking profusely because that's the thing that you should really do when you're trying to really help your self-esteem is just start drinking profusely. And so I was drinking profusely and who walks up to me, but John C. Riley wow. walks up to me. He, he went to the theater school. And so he was being very supportive and very whatever. And he walks up to me and he said, I just want to say, I really liked your piece. Great. That would have been the opening. So many other people would have taken that as an opportunity <laughs> to network with a movie, a budding movie star at the time and a nice guy, by the way. But what comes out of my mouth is I hated boogie nights. <laughs> that comes out of my mouth. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Gina, Gina, Gina. That's not the worst part about it. The worst part is Gina. I had never seen Boogie Nights. Wow. I lied. That's I lied about seeing Boogie. I had never seen Boogie Nights. I had never seen it. I don't know what happened to me. I I I went crazy. I was so ashamed of myself that I just started saying random lying insults i don't know <laughs> wait so so like i'm trying to get the get the scene here you okay is, i'm guessing that what happened for you <laughs> you felt badly about your 
monologue. And so when he said that thing to you, you felt it wasn't genuine and he was maybe even mocking you. So you wanted to say something nasty to him, but he was being sincere. It turns out. I think. Yeah. He, he was. And the guy, so I say, I hated boogie nights. And the guy says, and John C. Riley says what any nice person would say, which is why, but I hadn't seen it. Oh my God. So what am I going to say? So what I said was, I think it was chauvinistic. I'm so embarrassed. (laughs) It was chauvinistic and didn't depict women in a good way. I had no idea if that was true or not because I hadn't seen Boogie Nights. So then he says, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. And then he introduced me to his wife, who was lovely, and I scurried away. So, okay. So I was mortified. I I, I felt like the one person who gave me any attention at that showcase, I spit in his face, lied to, I mean, it, 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 it's unbelievable, the, the idiot that I was. I'm so embarrassed. And, and so I just carried that shame for so, so long. And one day I said, I'm going to find John C. Riley. This is like in 2007, eight after my dad died. And I'm going to try to make amends. <laughs> so I go online, I go on Facebook and I try to find him and I find who I think is him, but who knows? I didn't know what I was doing. And I write this long apology about self-esteem and my drinking and I get a response back from him but I don't know if it's him saying um, I got your message of course I remember you your monologue was great but now looking back I don't know if it was him it was some Facebook account it could have just been some some person with a fan Facebook page writing me back Gina so I still am embarrassed and I don't know (laughs) (laughs) wow wow did you feel good after you wrote the apology? Yes. Okay. I, I, and I wish I, I might still have it somewhere. I'm going to look. It was just like, listen, you said all these things to me that were nice. And I lied. I, I came clean about the whole thing. But I don't think it was really John C. Riley because John C. Riley is not going to have like a Facebook page. No, no. I don't know. But you definitely have to take screenshots of that. And we'll put it up on our Instagram. That's that's beautiful. And okay. But I the others, my other takeaway for that is like, yeah, maybe it was regrettable, but at the same time, it seems like one of the things that has emerged is if you had gotten a lot of attention, and probably me too, um, I, I'm not certain that our story would have been one of the ones that went the right way. You know what I mean? Like, I was actually just thinking about this this morning. I was thinking about how many female actors that I have loved over the years. And then every once in a while, I'm like, whatever happened to that person? A lot of it got revealed in the Harvey Weinstein of it all because we learned how many careers he ruined. But I think, I think that there's a bajillion other more like mundane reasons that, that, and it's things like that. I mean, not necessarily like embarrassing yourself, but you go down this path and it's like, it's, you're not ready for it. And then you blow it up in some kind of way. And I think if you do that and then you blow it up, then you feel maybe inhibited from ever trying to return to it, which is not the position that we're in. So I guess. No, that makes me feel better because really I was like, so ashamed that I 
blue, but you, but I was so ashamed, but also looking at it now and hearing you, I am grateful that I happened sooner rather than later. It's not like I was on set and like, you know, I don't know, shot someone or did something crazy or like overdosed on drugs and, and, you know, you know, whatever, but it was not. And, and apparently he's like the nicest person. Yeah. That's what, that's what Hoogs was saying. He's the nice, he said, you're the only person in America who's had a bad interaction with John. C. And it's totally my fault. My One of the questions that Boz and I ask most often of our guests is, what made you want to be an actor? What led you down this path? And we got some really great answers. So take a listen to Jeff Brown, Stephanie White, and Sean Gunn talk about this very thing. You want to know, I, I was, I was yes actor early, early on, which I think was detrimental to my work creatively as an actor, personally. Why? Well, I decided, I mean, I remember being a kid and being like, everyone's like, you can be whatever you want when you grow up. And I was like, well, if I could be anything I want, why not be an actor? Like what, what's, what could be more fun than that? That sounds perfect. So, uh, defense mechanism, a survival tactic. And so, the fortunate side of that is with that, I developed a, 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 a very uh, refined skill of observation and, you know, uh, uh, adaptivity, is that a word? <laughs> An mm-hmm. ability to adapt uh, because I had to, I had to. It was tough at the time, but looking back, I'm so glad because it's, 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 it's thread that, that, that ability has threaded itself through through my whole life. But what I'm thinking about is having that many siblings has to be a big part of your sense of humor. All mm-hmm. of my memories about you from the theater school all relate to hilarious things that you said or did. Are you the funny one in your sibling group? No, or they, are you no, funny? no. I okay. mean, I'm okay. not, like, I'm... I'm in, we're all the funny ones in my, in my family. I mean, I don't, I, I don't think I'm, you know, I try, but we're, we're, we, we all jockey to be the funny one in one way or another, maybe a couple, maybe if two or three of us more than the others a little bit, but like we're, we're constant. The, the, the thing about being a big family that really helps and really helped my acting a lot is timing. You like, you learn that, like you've got one narrow window to tell your joke when you, when you, when you, in a so group true. of six people or eight people when my parents were there and you're all trying to like crack each other up, particularly when we're all teenagers and stuff and we're trying to, to crack each other up. You've got about a quarter of a second to get your joke in. Holy shit. Right. To maximize if you're going to get laughs, to be able to say it before somebody else says it. If you miss it, it's gone. And so you, you learn timing that way and that helped me immensely when I started doing um doing work on camera and like auditioning for for sitcoms and 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 a lot of commercial work and stuff like that where um where comic timing was uh was incredibly important um and it's one of it's it's a it's a massive strength of mine and yet another strength that the theater school more or less didn't give a shit about I mean they didn't 
Like right. nobody was, nobody was like patting you on the back saying you, you've got great comic no. timing, you know, like and if, if anything, it was, it was the opposite. It was like, stop trying to go for the laughs. Stop trying to get right. laughs. Yeah. God forbid we right. should get laughs. Right. We have found that a lot of people were motivated to go to a conservatory based on the level of engagement that they experienced with theater in their high school. Here's a great story from Rollo Romig. But like, you know, I, I got into theater like almost by default because it was the first thing that I really enjoyed doing and that I seemed like I was good at. Um, both at the same time. And uh, like, I was good at math, but I hated math. I didn't want to math. Um, and uh, so, so that was just what I went for. But, you know, my school, my high school had like 300 students in it. And so, yeah, I did really well in the high school. Music. <laughs> <laughs> but that was not like high bar, you know? It was, very, it was a very like big fish in a small pond scenario. And so... But then on the other hand, the weird thing was like the the drama teacher at my high school was really gung ho and she treated us like professionals and she treated us like we were all going to go into the theater. Even though it was it was weird. It was not a performing arts school. It was just like your normal sort of like Catholic high school. And, but but, they, but she was like in her own universe where she was like, no, in, in, when you're in my shows, you are at a performing arts high school. Wow. So wait, she was, she was waiting for Guffman. She was uh, Christopher Guest. <laughs> and she was great. She was wonderful, you know, and she, and the funny thing is like, there were students from my school who became very successful um, in this tiny school. So like a, a couple years older than me uh, was uh, Keegan-Michael Key. Oh, and, wow. uh, and he said before that she was, and I knew him well at the time. And she said before that, uh, that uh, I mean, he, he said before that she was like the formative influence. Like she's the one who got him into wow. theater. Oh, this uh, uh, music and drama teacher. And so, and he was really encouraging to me too. You know, like I remember like when it, he was already in drama school, I think at the University of Detroit. And I remember like visiting him there. He showed me around and, and he was great. And like, you know, he kind of made me, I don't want to blame him, but he did make me kind of feel like I could do it. One of the biggest obstacles to getting into theater school is the audition. Some of us were better prepared than others, both for what we were going to do, but also for what we were going to see when we were at these auditions. Take a listen to Shana Firm and Larry Bates talking about auditioning. Do you remember like Carnegie mm. Mellon? Well, you said Carnegie Mellon, right? Do you remember that? Yeah. Well, I did musical theater there, so uh, which was very different. So I, I'm a singer, so I, I didn't know what I wanted to do if I wanted to go to straight. Th- I knew I wanted to be like a serious actor, um, which is funny now because I'm a comedian, which is like ridiculous. But um, I uh, definitely auditioned for the music theater department at Carnegie Mellon, and I'll never forget there was a ballet audition. Okay. So like half these kids like weren't, you know, we weren't dancers, but you had to do this dance audition. And I just remember sitting there in like the lobby. Um, everyone was stretching, you know, like getting real serious and just stretching. And there, some people were wearing like, like I was probably wearing sweatpants, but like this girl was wearing tights and a leotard and all of her pubes were (gasps) out inside of her tights. (laughs) 
that that was me. That would have been me. But it, she was like stretching, like leg up in the air, like and just and I just you know I was like seventeen, like like oh my god, I probably didn't even have pubic hair, and I was just like mortified, and I'll never forget it. And I had to drive to New Orleans, which was like four hours away, and my speech teacher gave me two two plays. One was My Children, My Africa. And I think the other one was like, whose life is it anyway? But one of them was about a guy who was a quadriplegic is all is from neck down, yeah. right? And para, okay, yeah. So he's a quadriplegic. So I was also very full of myself. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, I'm just gonna do this. I'm gonna I'm gonna do the monologue, uh, the quadriplegic oh monologue. Oh my god! Yeah, oh and again, god. and again, I didn't I didn't read the play. I didn't read the play. This I didn't have the concept fantastic. of reading the play. So I'm like. Yeah, I'm gonna do that. I'm just gonna sit there and just talk with my head, and they're gonna love. They're gonna love me. They're gonna love me. So I'm like, yeah, that. So I I work on that monologue for like two weeks. Get in the car to drive to New Orleans, and I just go, you know what, Larry? Maybe you should do something where you're a little more. <laughs> on the just car go. ride. In the car ride. Yes. So I'm learning the monologue for my children, my Africa, on the car ride oh to New Orleans. Wow. Okay, so Larry may have felt like he could get away with doing that because he had a lot of experience in high school doing speech and drama. Um, But let's take a listen to Ryan Kitley to learn about what his experience was like having literally never done a play or audition for anything in his life before coming to his theater school audition. But I, I never, I just asked so many people. I'm like, how do I do this? What do I do? Um, you know, I was living with like my non-acting roommates and I would perform it for them and they'd just be like, oh yeah, that's great. That's great. You know, they had no, like we're all just like, so. Um, They're I, like, how did you memorize that? That's the first thing that everybody right. always says. How did you memorize I, all, you memorize those, all lines? those lines? So I, I laugh about the um, the audition because I walked in um it was the the large movement room. Um, John, uh, I think John Jenkins was there. I know John Bridges was there. Maybe Melissa Meltzer um, and Jim Ostelhoff, right? And I, I had no idea what to expect. I walk, I walk in, and you know, it's empty except for a chair in the middle of the room. And I kind of looked at the chair. I'm like, I've never done this monologue sitting down i'm thinking to myself like what do i do with this chair so i mean I'm. oh you thought you had to sit down i didn't yeah i just didn't know and um i mean i was so nervous um and you know just picture those four especially ostelhoff just sitting there you know staring at me so mm-hmm. i grabbed the chair to kind of move it and jim um from you know all the way at the other end of the room he's just like put the chair up stage <laughs> And I didn't know what that meant. Oh, right. I didn't, oh, yeah. I'm not kidding you. I was like, so I didn't. Are you looking speak. up? Like, I was looking <laughs> around and he's like, put the chair upstage. And so I kind of like, I moved. I don't, I don't remember what I did, but he literally had to say up by the other wall, you know? So I was like, okay, great. So I, I, and, you know, and I mean, they must have just been like, you guys, like, are you kidding me? You didn't know what upstage meant? Um. 
In contrast to Ryan's experience, we have also interviewed plenty of people who were acting ever since they can remember. And just because somebody is born wanting to be an actor doesn't mean they come from a family of performers. In fact, sometimes they come from a family of rugby players. Listen to this story by Amy Farrell. One of that, of that Annie thing was my dad, who was a he was like a rugby player, construction worker, Irish motherfucker. And he was like, I don't know what the fuck did, what, 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 what are you doing? What's his acting shit? He came to every rehearsal for Annie and sat in the back. He never said a thing. Like big guy just sitting there, never said a thing. And then one day we were driving home in the big suburban. He goes, Amy, that, that scene with that, with the dog. Like, I, it, Amy, you got to fucking love that dog. I don't believe it. I don't believe you don't love that fucking dog. You gotta like that dog's gotta be everything. We're going to the backyard and we're going to practice. And we—he's like the Tony Soprano acting coach dad. He was before every um, performance of Annie. We did a complete rugby warm up in the backyard because that's all he knew. I was gonna do a super cut of every time somebody's brought up the marketing department on this podcast. We have. Many of us have said that the only way we ever found out about the school that we wanted to go to was because they sent us something in the mail and how there should be statues of the marketing department erected on the conservatory campuses. But let's hear a different kind of getting to know your school story from PJ Powers. Feels authentic about this place. And I and I loved Chicago. I grew up just outside Detroit, so I'm, you know, a Midwestern boy. Um so it, it just felt, it felt right. And what's funny is, so that, that weird experience I had standing in the lobby of like, mm, there's no one actually here for me happened again when I came back to audition. Cause like I flew into town by myself. I'm like, thanks mom and dad. I just, just, you know, good luck. Get on a plane. Um, and, to, <laughs> and took a cab to the theater school, like on a Friday and the audition was Saturday morning and they were supposed to have a student host me for the night. Um, Oh, like yeah, yeah, or or in, yeah. in their their apartment or something, and so it was December, so you know people were on break, so there's not many people around the building. So again, I showed up, and they're like, "Oh yeah, we dropped the ball. There's no one to host." Me. <laughs> so I'm 18 years old. I'm in Chicago, and I'm like, "Okay, where do I stay? Pull up a mat in room 403." And, yeah, and right. so they just started like walking around the the lounge there, and they're like, "Hey, is anybody willing to have this dude crash on your couch?" And so, uh, her, Jessica, <laughs> That's insane. Jessica something, I'm forgetting her, her last name. Hannah? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh! She, she was like, yeah, I'll take you. So she, she took me to dinner at Salt and Pepper, and I, like, crashed oh, on her couch yeah. and auditioned the next day. I've also talked to people who really didn't know what to expect when they came to a big city and to a theater conservatory. Listen to Tate Smith as he talks about his first day at theater school. Like Sean Spratt was from San Jose, and then, then you had like Hunter Andre from Florida, who was like 50 years old as a freshman, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, and, uh, and you had jo- and Jonas, who and some of these people had done like movies, like, yeah, movies and commercials and stuff, and people from Texas and Detroit and dancers and, you know, people that were smoking and wearing leather vests and fedoras and <laughs> had pagers. And I'm like, dude, what is going on? Man? So we've 
we've made it into theater school. We've gotten past our first day. We've some of us have gotten acquainted with, for the first time with things like voice and speech and movement to music and pelvic clock and Feldenkrais and Linklater. And what we all get really excited about almost universally is when we're first going to be cast in something. There's a lot of anticipation around getting cast and there's a lot of uh, unsurprisingly disappointment there too. People who got cast in things that they did not want to be cast in, people who did not get cast in things that they did. Take a listen to Jen Kober and Eric Slater talking about two such experiences. Like I get that. I had a lot of tricks, you know, being when you do comedy, there's tricks. There's there's a little Rolodex of things you can do that are gonna get a laugh, you know, repeating things and 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 things like that. And and I I knew all of those tricks and I was very good at them. And I understand them wanting to, you know, pull that back and, and get me into something that was more organic and more natural. But that's not what it felt like. It felt like they were just trying to like pull away everything that was me and and make me into this this sort of neutral actress, which isn't what I wanted to do. It, and, and they kept casting me in these terrible... Like, what? Like, I what? More what were you in? I was in a production of The Birds in a workshop, in a fucking classroom. It was like a Greek... Aristophanes. Yes. Yeah, it was awful. It was painful. It was awful. And it was directed by Rob Chambers, who is one of the most incredibly talented directors that that school ever fucking produced. He was fantastic. I still know that cat to this day. I hang out with him. He's a great fucking director, but, but, but we're doing the birds as, <laughs> as like a fucking workshop. Like, you know, Bella is sitting in the oh, front God. fucking row asleep because yeah. the room was so hot with heat <laughs> because it was the middle of the fucking winter and we're dressed in leotards like Bert. I had like a phallus, like a beak that looked like a penis on my face for oh, this God. fucking show oh, and no, i played God. i was the king of the birds and i played it like danny fucking devito i was like i'm the king of the birds like I, I was, they hated me they hated me so much they didn't oh, understand anything i was doing and they weren't ready for you as a fucking bird like who looks at me and says yep bird like it's just <laughs> i don't understand so it was it was annoying for me to be there because i didn't feel like they understood who I was. I didn't feel like they wanted to understand who I was. I don't think feel like they wanted me to bring me to what I was doing. And that felt um, very stifling and confusing. And I wasn't a happy cat when I was there. Mm. Well, so it's a good thing you didn't stay. But I was, <laughs> I was, I was... The Attic Machine was one of them. I really wanted to be in that one. And I really wanted to be in The Seagull like really bad oh, and i i was the seagull. that one hurt my feelings i got my feelings who you. directed that that was, was bella bella and oh. i i remember talking to her like go making an appointment and talking to her in her office after not getting it and just and i waited for the show to open and i saw it and i was just like you know can i talk to you about it and she knew i was coming right so i sit down and i was just like so what's the problem what's your problem with me why couldn't i be in that show um and her response was like i i didn't want you in it <laughs> and i was like oh okay damn she <laughs> biggest memories from being at the theater school and being upset about casting is one I'm really not proud of, but in the spirit of trying to be truthful and owning it all, I will just say, yes, it was vandalism. Yes, the glass shattered, but actually there is no but. It was just bad what I did. Great, six cents.
anyway, so my point is what, what in some ways was worse or as damaging as getting cut was getting these shit parts every single time, every single time. I just, Yellow Boat was like a fun experience, but I was like in the chorus essentially. So, so it all culminated for me when I kicked in the door. Right. The door. I was away. I was away. But I heard about you told me about it. And Russell told me about it. I kicked in the door. Did anyone ever, did you ever get busted? Nope. (laughs) And and they're not even in that building anymore. So I can't have statute of limitations has expired. No, but it was the fun. Remember how we used to go wait for the cast list? That's the worst. The worst. What was that bar? That Irish bar, like a, a block away? Kelly's? Was it called Kelly's maybe? Kelly's. We would go to Kelly's and wait for the cast list to come up. And then we go. So, my very final term of my final year, I got another workshop and I kicked in the door. Okay, that was bad. But in my defense, I will say I am not the only person who gets this passionate about doing a play. Listen to another story from Rollo Romig about his high school drama teacher. But anyway, so I, I went, and man, she made it so, this teacher made it so exciting too. Like, um, you know, she made us feel like what we were doing was the most important thing in the world. And she had really high standards. Like I remember the first show that I was in with her when I was a sophomore uh, was South Pacific. And it was like the night before we opened. And she was really unhappy with the level of focus coming from the chorus she was <laughs> enraged about it she and she started screaming we were in the like in the gym which had been made in the auditorium you know it was all set up with folding chairs and everything already we were ready to go and she just like lost it and she just started screaming at us in the gym like uh, screaming at the chorus in particular like what are you doing wake <laughs> up the show starts tomorrow and while she's yelling she's picking up metal folding chair over her head and and just chucking them across the room and and they're flying into other folding chairs and crashing and she does this over and over and like oh my god and i remember some of the parents were like not happy about this she was not fucking around i was delighted There is one story about how somebody dealt with their casting situation that tops every other story. We had to include it. Take a listen to John Cabrera. The lovers together and, and, and uh, we both, again, experienced the defeat of being in the, in the workshop pool. Um, my reaction to that was a little different from Gina's, but <laughs> but it's okay. The cat's out of the bag. We already told the break in the door story. Okay, good. Um and uh and so I, I approached Gina, I was like, hey, I got an idea. Um I wanna do I want to do this photo shoot where I want to sort of um through a series of, of images, I want to recreate my experience discovering that I was cast in Merrily We Roll Along. <laughs> <laughs> and so we did this whole photo shoot with me like auditioning then me like yeah and then me like walking up to the door me looking to see where my name was then me like falling into the door sliding down the door 
And then, uh, and then what I did is that I, I had those photos developed and then I printed them all onto white Fruit of the Loom t-shirts that I got from, you know, Kmart or wherever. And I put all of them on one after the other. And then I put like my main shirt over the top of it. And I showed up, you know, to that day and people were looking at me like, what's, what's wrong with that guy? Like, there's something going on with JP as he put on some weight or, you know, because I was like really puffy, you know, and everyone was going around the room they were going around the room doing their thing you know and everyone was looking at me like because everybody's got like dioramas and big posters and all this stuff and jp's just sitting there twiddling his thumbs and they're thinking there's something up with jp we don't know what it is and and also they're also some of them are thinking JP didn't do it like he didn't do like he, he, you know, once again, just didn't bring in his assignment and he's going to come up with some excuse, you know, for why he doesn't have his work, you know, because that was also another trend with me is that I just didn't like doing homework. Um, and so <laughs> they got to me and I stood up and I was oh like, yeah, God. I've been thinking a lot about this, you know, broken dreams thing. And, you know, and I, I, I realize it's true that I do have a broken dream that I want to share with the class. Oh my God. And then I just proceeded to remove t-shirt after t-shirt and <laughs> threw the t-shirts to people. in because everyone was dying laughing, including Betsy Hamilton. And they all wanted the t-shirts, right? Like they, they were like, they were me, me, you know? So I'd like tossing people t-shirts across the room by the time we got to the end of it. And like Betsy was like on the floor and I mean, of course, she knew what I was saying, which was, I really, really, really don't want to be in this stupid oh show. <laughs> um, but she also couldn't deny that, like, brilliant. You know, I, you know, that I, that I, well, that she walked, oh, that she, know. that she walked into that. So let's say you're one of the people who was pretty happy with how you got cast and did get on a main stage show and did get a lead part that did not guarantee that there were not going to be any onstage calamities. Take a listen to Sarah Sherapar telling her story. Super funny. Okay, and you were yes, on Hills. And, and, and I was thinking about Lee Kirk this morning because Lee Kirk was in it, Sean Gunn was in it, J. Pre Cabrera was in it, Alex, I mean, and, 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 um, Bradley Walker and Bradley Walker. I mean, that that play Kendra Thulin that that was that play was that play was all I think that was my favorite play for sure that I did although full of calamitous moments of of <laughs> utter terror and <laughs> and destruction did, did you get dizzy on that rake stage too no I got well I got scalded I got two horrible things happened in the show I have to okay so the first one was there's, you know, there's a show at the end of like one scene there's like a coin toss and then that determines what the next scene's going to be and we yes, had to run off stage. Right. It was a rainstorm. We had to run back on stage wet. So we got dunked with water off stage and ran back on. And I can't remember his name. I'm such a crumb. He was a lovely stage manager. He had long kind of auburn hair. He was just adorable. Oh, yes. Scar. It'll come to me. Not Adam, no, not Adam. Not Adam he had reddish no. hair. You're with me. Okay. Pale, pale, I I, I very, can picture him, but I lovely. can't. So I remember, um, he had told the 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 kids. And I say kids because what other the, the the kids working crew. Um, make sure you put really um warm water in at the top of the act. Put hot water in the bucket at the top of the act oh, so no. that when we dunk them in water, they um aren't freezing. 
And um, oh no, whoever uh, neglected to do this, so did it at the end of the act. And I ran off stage and literally had a giant bucket of scalding water poured on top of me, and had to run immediately back on stage and finish a scene. That was alarming. Oh, that's, that's horrible. And how, how long were you on stage? I was on stage then for another few minutes. And then we did the coin toss. And I just looked at Kendra. I'm like, you're doing the next scene. I was like, this is not, because I couldn't go on. I was like hyperventilating. I'm like, I can't. <laughs> we had like burn cream in my hairline. And then I had like, I had like a, a scene or to, to recover and then had to go back on. But that, because it was like <gasps> the potential to do like eight different plays or whatever, the way that play was set up. Um, but that wasn't the most terrifying moment. I will just, I, the most terrifying thing that happened in that show. So there was a whole big picnic scene where we were all, you remember this, all on that hill. And yes, cucumber sandwiches. Cucumber and the sandwiches. whole thing is about the extra guy. I think it was Bradley's character. An extra guy shows up. So we ha- we're mm-hmm. one short. We're one short of everything. And all of the dialogue mm-hmm. in that scene revolves around the one shortedness. And God damn it, if I didn't open that picnic basket and it was fucking empty, there was like a napkin and two <gasps> plates. And I'll never forget. And this is why I was thinking of Lee Kirk, because like I was really I was really tight with those guys at the time. And and I was running the picnic. So all the dialogue was motivated by me, motivated by props about the things oh and about the lack of things. And I remember opening it up and looking at it and being like, there's nothing in here. And this is at the Reskin. Like, there's people out there. And I turned to Sean, Sean Gunn, who's playing my boyfriend, Stefan. I'm like, Stafford, could you go to the car and see if there's a, you know, like, is there a bag in the car? <laughs> and I just remember looking over and seeing Lee Kirk, because he could tell her, and he just went, and put his hands behind his head and leaned back, like, I can't wait to see how Sarah gets out of this one. I'll never forget that fucker. It was so funny. I mean, it was like the most panicked. And we just had to basically make up the entire, like, and then I remember seeing that same stage manager whip off his headset, go booking around, trying to find. And then like, you know, three minutes later, Sean comes walking on like, oh, is this what you're looking for? I'm like, oh, it's super. Thank you so much. If the presiding memory for Sarah was about getting scalded in the show, there is another person whose presiding memory is actually about Sarah. And so let's listen to Bradley Walker. So when we're on this park bench, she's sitting on the bench and I'm kneeling behind the bench sort of with my arm over it, like leaning on it. And we're having uh, this prelude to a kiss uh, scene. And uh, we were in the Merle Reskin. And we're not miked. That's a big house. Um, and she was just speaking, just speaking normally. And just for a minute, I was completely taken out of the scene because I could feel all the resonance of her voice in the wood wow. of that bench. Like, I mean, like she was, her voice was, and she wasn't screaming. She wasn't booming or belting. She just had the resonance um, and that frequency. And she filled up that hall and, you know, we all could, we could cheat it. Uh, if we couldn't, if we, if we couldn't do it legitimately, we had our tricks. Um, but she was just making that bench vibrate. And I, for whatever reason, I always remembered that just what an amazing voice. Wow. Um, yeah. 
Actors are often tasked with playing roles that are so far outside of their own experience that they can be unnerving. Let's listen to another story from Ryan Kelly. Nikki Silver. You were in it. You were in it. We. I, I love that play. I love that play so much. I love that play, and I'll always love it. It was. It was. That was the first full play because the intro we kind of did like I don't know. We did like uh, one act, and then we switched roles, and we did the second act. So the intro wasn't like a full play, um, but I did Raising a Captivity, and I, I'll never forget it. Um, uh, Sean Gunn uh, was in it with me. I was in it with him. Um, and uh, he was, he was so good in that play. So I'll never good. forget. And yeah. he's such a great yeah. actor and such a cool guy. Um, but I have a, a scene where I'm, I play a gay prostitute and I'm making out with Sean Gunn, um, oh, like right. rolling around yeah. on the floor. And, um, but like one of the, I think it was probably, you know, one of the first shows where we had audience, I had my college buddies and an ex-girlfriend sitting in the first row, you know, first wow. row, sitting in the, you know, in the classroom. Yeah in the room yeah. there and they had no idea what to expect. I didn't tell them anything. <laughs> I mean, they, they'd never seen me act. They, you know, they're a couple of the guys were like, you know, ex jocks or whatever. And they're just like, what, what was that? <laughs> they're like, Kitley, what, what was that? Um, okay. You know, they didn't know what to say after the show. Okay, we've talked a lot about acting and actors and acting training, but uh, theater school has a lot more disciplines than that, including directing and set making and lighting design and costume and makeup. Let's listen to a story from Nick Bowling about one particularly ambitious project he did. So we um, we were given an assignment. We had this class called, you know, Confab or something like that, collaboration, which was uh, directors and designers. Uh, and how cool it would have been if there could have been actors in that as well, but then that would have been the entire school and that would have been a whole, you know, th an enormous thing. That was one of the challenges. But anyway, in Confab, we were given an assignment to kind of work on a play called, an opera called Tristan and Isolde, uh, Isolde, I think is what it's called. And, you know, it's this very passionate Wagnerian opera. Um, and I was working on it with Kevin. It was just the two of us. And we were given a room over in the annex to to design an idea, right? Um, so we came up with this idea of this room um, filled with water where there would be two naked bodies. Oh, of I male remember this. Yes, right? I remember and this. Two naked bodies and then a burning ice moon we wanted a burning ice moon in the room the entire room would be black and there'd be kind of crystals sparkling through the whole room and then this ice moon would be burning and pieces of what turned out to be plastic so many wrongs uh burning and dripping down into the water hot burning plastic fires burning and then stopping in the water and I'm talking a, over a foot of water in this room. Now, let me tell you where this room was located. Directly above the computer lab. Oh, my no God. Joke. Oh, my and, God. And um, while nobody told us we could do that, <clears throat> nobody told us we couldn't do it, Kevin, you know, we've, we leak, we, we put stuff down to leak-proof the room. This is where Kevin was really amazing. He just was like, we can do it. And, and, we, and then we built this ice moon out of, 
it's so wrong. Such a, I'm sure there was something very toxic about this. Out of, you know, the, the plastic things that go around a can of soda. Yeah. You know, the little plastic, the things that are killing a- yeah. animals turtles, in the ocean. Turtles are stuck. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's right. So we put them to good use. We we put them inside this ice cone that was, I mean, seriously, maybe, well, I'm, I probably, it's bigger in my head, but maybe it was like 15 inches in diameter, whatever it be. And, and we um, put tons of them in there. And then when we did it, we lit the thing and it burned into the middle slowly. And this, and it burnt these little things off and it looked like this moon was melting. This ice moon was burning and, and, and freezing cold and dripping at the same time. What did it and, smell like? That's what I want. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, let me just say this. There was other smells to be involved because the room, the water had been sitting there for a few oh. days. There was a bit of a, and then there were naked bodies in the water. So we've talked a lot about what people did in theater school, but we haven't really talked about the point of our show, which is how people survived. Many people survived on account of their friendships, the relationships that they developed when they were in theater school. That's certainly true for me and for many people that we've talked to. Let's listen to a story that both talks about that and a particularly interesting uh, acting exercise with David Desmulshin and John Hugenacre that you're in the ensemble family mode during rehearsal and it felt like kind of um, during a production, but then it was right back to, you know, this really intensely bizarre, like John, I mean, there's no better, I guess, adverb than mindfuckery of, um, and, and it was, it was, um, I'm very grateful. um, And many great true friendships came out of that time because when you go through something that intense and that trying, but we, um, we we I would love to tell a quick story if I can because we were kind of we weren't kind of we were absolutely fuck ups we were in trouble a lot um, because it's no mystery that I had a pretty intense substance abuse problem in college and John had a pretty serious attitude problem in college and uh, neither of us dealt well with authority although we loved being directed which has always been a paradox with us like we love great directors that get in and like help guide us and shape things but at the same time we are the first people to you know get our backs up sometimes and i um and i remember john and i were so frustrated that some of the people like he, he there was this this feeling of like posturing or presentation that always felt inauthentic to us and we wanted you know we're in chicago we want to rub real dirt on our faces and smash glass and we're gonna get in there and and we were doing a, a, a scene together from um, uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross for um, second year uh, scene study work with Joe Slowick. And it was so intense. It was the Moss Aronau scene at the Chinese restaurant. John is just needling into me to like, you're going to, you're going to get in on this heist or I'm going to ruin your life. And we loved, like, we got into that so much. It was all space work and we're in generally John and I were in, I was either in rave clothes or John was in some tie dye Bob Marley thing. And, um, and so we had this big special guest coming to the theater school who was going to do a scene study uh, workshop. And it was F Murray Abraham. And um, I'll never forget. We were also excited, big fans. We go, they did it at a separate location on campus. And it was where it was where we right. had yes. history of dramatic yeah. lit, I think. Where uh-huh. nobody cheated. And he um <laughs> he goes 
he blew through the scenes that he was working on so quickly and he was getting frustrated like stop with the bullshit stop with the the presentation like let's work these and he was also he was also like not giving like he would give a really incisive note and yeah. then he'd be like all right now fuck off and do better in life <laughs> yeah and that was he, it he, he, he didn't want over preparation he wanted this to be like a malleable play-doh-y kind of moment where we could so we were not part of that event john and i were just sitting in the back row probably like just like whoa this is so cool dude like that's a maria maria i'm doing scenes and he looked to the crowd he's like is that all you got because they had prepared i don't remember four or five scenes for him to work on yeah it was like it was like well it was like two from each classroom and and then we had like a break and the teachers were kind of looking around at each other like well that's all i had and dave that's all i got dave you went uh yeah slowick turned to me and john and slowick goes you guys, and I was like, can we do it, John? Can we do it? And John's like, yeah, let's do it. We had no prop prepper. Everyone else is in costumes and they've got their props. And John and I hopped up with, uh, we, we made do, right? We got a bottle that we borrowed from someone else's scene. Yeah. Some cups. Um, and we jumped up there and we did this. We did this scene where F. Murray had recently done the piece or he was familiar enough with it that he could kind of jump in and, and do it with this. But I was so proud that day of, even though I knew what F ups we were. And even though I knew that I was, I knew that the work we were putting into and the discipline and the, and the, and the love we were putting into building these characters together and how much we loved playing off one another was, I knew in that moment, this is something I'm going to do with this guy for the rest of my life. And sure enough, we've gone on to do films, two films together outside of school. We continue to collaborate. Um, I knew in that moment though, I was like, this guy, I'm holding on to him for the rest of my acting life. Dude, I want to I, so I want to jump in because that was such a that was first of all that was a, it was an amazing experience and we were like we were like greyhounds just ready to run and and we were also we didn't realize that so I'm going to we talk about surviving the theater school. I don't know where to start, but more importantly, I don't know where I should stop. So you guys got to shut me up. <laughs> um so, so uh, I ran, I got that bottle from my roommate who drank Jameson like all the time. So I ran across because we were in Seton Hall, not Seton Hall, but uh, Sanctuary. University. Right across, yeah. Sanctuary. And I got the bottle and I came back and Dave and I were getting ready and we do this, we do the scene. And I knew, we knew that F. Murray was going to just like give us a note and you know, dismiss us. So he gave us this note. And the, w- the one thing was I had been breaking up this paragraph that I was given to Dave you know, kind of feeling my way through it and kind of schmacting. And he was like, you know, this David Mamet gives you all of the direction you need with the punctuation. It's like Shakespeare. And you need to just drive through without taking a, a break because that's going to give you more payoff at the end of the at the end of the scene. And Dave and I looked at each other and we just started doing the scene before he could dismiss us. So we jumped right into it. And he had gone through all the people in our class that had been put forward. He had gone through upperclassmen and that was the first group. Dave and I were the first two that had the audacity to just jump, take the note and jump back in. And when, That's we, finished, fantastic. when we finished, he was like, that is preparation. And he, <laughs> Do you remember that dude? Cause he turned around and you and I were like, I'm top motherfucker. That's why I got him. It does preparation. We would cut us now motherfuckers. Yeah. <laughs>
good theater school has professors and teachers who are characters themselves. And we have talked to so many people with so many wonderful and terrifying and, and, and horrible and funny and heartwarming stories of teachers. And here is Boz talking about her encounters with her first year acting teacher. This is crazy. Like he, my one, when I met with him and got a warning, the first, whenever the first warnings came out, we had to meet and he was my teacher and we met. He literally said, what sign are you? I swear to God. And I said, I'm a Libra. And then he started talking about the problems that Libras had. I mean, it was crazy. But at the time, I didn't think it was crazy. Now looking back, I'm like, what sign? What he literally was talking about astrology during a, what it, what? Some professors are truly legends, and one of them is Dr. Bella Itkin. We're going to have, in the future, a whole episode devoted to Dr. Bella, but in the meantime, here's a great story from Susan Bennett. So, yes, like, so I had, <laughs> so I had Dr. Bella, and I was a very repressed, very um, rigid person when I entered the theater school. Naturally, I thought I was very edgy, but really what I was was very rigid. <laughs> okay. I can relate. This is um, for me. Well, yeah. <laughs> Did it really? So you understand, yes. right? Oh, yes. yeah. Okay. So you, I, I thought I was cool. Really? I was in a fugue repressed state. Uh -huh. <laughs> yes. So we've all been there. And maybe that's what the draw to theater school is. is like you have this, you, whatever it is that you need, it is, it, it is kind of based in this need to find out for yourself who you really are. And I get, that's the time of life, but it's definitely what theater school at least for young, for undergrad folks, was about. And so Dr. Bella's class was technique. And, uh, you know, doc, Dr. Bella was a very <laughs> old person then and very uh, understated person. And, um, oh, my God. Very, very serious person. And that for me was very, very threatening because I was very supercilious and very on the surface about things and kind of had this edge that I was putting out in the world. And Dr. Mello was not impressed and had seen four million students like me. And she was trying to impart something that perhaps at even a certain point she realized like this kid isn't ready to understand. Like when she would say like, if you'll feel it in your sex, put it there. And I didn't understand what that meant. I didn't understand like, Oh, I have memories in my body, in my organism that I can draw upon. If I merely imagine that sensation there, it will go there. If I imagine that I'm, uh, excited and tense and upset, it will go there. If I imagine that I'm really relaxed and I'm, you know, in a sensual situation, then I can put it in my body and my body will communicate things that my face won't communicate, that my, you know, that I intellectually can't communicate. Like I will just communicate those things. I didn't get it. I didn't understand. When did you get it? When I got a C, <laughs> I got a C in technique. And believe me, I was like, 
I wanted to be edgy, but I also want to get good grades. I had been like a grade girl. Like I got good grades, God damn it. And um, so I got that. Well, you know what? I think I came to understand that I didn't know what I was doing when I got the C, but it wasn't until, so correction, I got the C. I realized like, I don't know what, I don't understand what the fuck is going on. And then I started acting. I got very lucky when I came out of school. I was in a production of uh, Les Liaisons Dangereux. And then I did a production of Uncle Vanya. And it was in those it was in those situations where I was on stage with other people who were really skilled and wonderful actors that I, I started to understand. Like it was through observation. It was through kind of understanding like why how are they able to create this over and over and over again? And um, I think honestly, probably maybe four or five years out of school, I started to kind of understand like, Oh, I think now I get, because she would say things like you're in the desert. It's very hot. Um, You're thirsty. You've been out there a long time. And the phone rings. And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm in the desert. Phone can't ring the desert instead of, oh, I'm hot. Like, you are you should be able to imaginatively okay. switch between these states, right? Couldn't First of all, I, I have to just say, you know, your impressions are I mean, spot on. I, I should be fully channeling. I mean, channel. It's not even impressions. You're channeling. And I, I, I shouldn't be surprised for all the work you do it's with your indelible. body and your <laughs> Well, your body and your voice, you clearly, you know what you're doing. But when you say that stuff about like it took you four or five years i don't think i still know that <laughs> I, I mean I, i'm telling you right now like when i get a tv side acting is one of those things that looks really easy but it's actually really hard and it's hard to teach acting, it's hard to learn acting, it's hard to do acting, and it is especially hard for people who are in their late teens and early 20s who are meant to play in a conservatory experience the complement of roles that are out there in the canon of theater, which include a lot of characters that are not 21 years old. Listen to this story from Lee Kirk. 21 or something 22 playing okay i remember playing father jack in dancing at lunasa right? right okay this guy's like in his he's like 55 i guess and he has malaria i had no <laughs> I, had, I had no connection to that so i played him like a shuffling old man i played him like he was 85 90 years old wheezing and coughing <laughs> and all this and i remember one day phyllis said to me you realize he's like 55 right <laughs> <laughs> she's like he's like my age almost so yes and i had no use for that i was like i don't know how to play 50 how do i play 55 like right. all i can do right. is either old guy or young guy so i'm playing old guy right now you know <laughs> right that's hilarious but, yeah yeah so among other things conservatories are also meant to be colleges and offering the same college experience as you might otherwise have and most people in college are really trying to find themselves so let's listen to a story from Siler Thomas about finding himself. But I would, so, and so we, the show is Phaedra. I was on the lighting crew. My job during the show. And if, do you remember they used to do these shows? At, no one would see them because they were only in December. Your, your classmates wouldn't see your show. I don't remember that at all. I don't remember that at all. Yeah, it, it was, I, I hope they don't do it anymore because it, it's, 
you know, like no one gets to experience what you what you're doing because well, everyone's wait, gone. Are you, are you saying uh, th this was just an optional thing? Because the quarter system, you know, everyone goes home at Thanksgiving. I was assigned to this particular play, which only played in the month of December, which was Phaedra that year. Okay. So nobody saw it. My friends didn't see it. No, I mean, only people that were crew and then the, the handful of subscribers to these. That you know, sounds, the yeah, shows. bad marketing the, right there. Sorry. The show was amazing. I sat, it, there was a, anyway, but, but I, I, I sat at this, at this uh, place in the basement, turned off a switch off and on. That was, I, I, I touched the switch four times. That's all I did. A big, a big light moved from one side of the show to the other designed by John Colbert, brilliant lighting design. Like it was this beautiful show that absolutely no one saw. But I sat down there and I read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis and just little light bulbs are just like, boop, 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 as I'm like in the basement of the then Blackstone Theater. So it was just this kind of really, man, I'm just, I am, I am figuring out what's my worldview, who am I, what's, what, what's, what, how does this all work together? Um, and yeah, how, so that how, was, it was great. How about the poetry of your on lighting crew and you have these light bulbs? Oh my your, gosh. Never, your never, never so that cool. had never occurred to me until right now. <laughs> I love that. That's you you can credit me when you use that. Name. Most, if not all, theater conservatories and programs in the world have abandoned, if they ever had one in the first place, their cut system. Boz and I were in school and many of our guests were in school at a time where the cut system was still very much in effect. And we wanted to take a moment to listen back to some people who were cut, sharing their stories. First up is Blake Hackler. So what is your understanding about why you didn't get asked back after your second year? Oh Paul? yeah. So this is kind of a, a long and involved story. So Good. I um, <laughs> like, do it, do it, say mm -hmm. it. Um, so I sort of knew that uh, I knew that it was a possibility because so in our second year, you know, we do those like scene like showings, right? Like mm -hmm. and, and, and like everyone comes and watches and it's like a test, right? So my first one was with Paul Holmquist and uh, we did this great scene from uh, a play called uh, The Lisbon Traviata. Mm -hmm. And... Um, we did an amazing job, if I do say so myself. Uh, and no, it, it was it was it was really good. Don uh, was super excited about it. And after that, so I I got a lot of like the faculty really thought it was great. They thought I did an amazing job, all of that. And then Don came in like that next week and was like, "Well, just get ready because you're going to get cut." And I was like, "Why? I just did an amazing job at this." He's like, "I know." He's like, "But." These people have no imagination. And and he, he's like, you did a great job, but you did a great job because so many things in your life right now are conspiring to like make you know what that scene is about. And he's like, what it shows is that you can do that thing. Like you can do that kind of work, but you don't know how to like get there on a consistent, you, it, it, it's going to wow. take you. And, and he, he, he said, but they will expect this kind of work every single time now. And if you don't do it, they will think that you, you know, yeah. And he was 100% right. Oh, my God. Yeah, yes. And um, so my official note, my official warning, it only had one thing on it. It 
it said that I had a physical hold uh, between my shoulder blades. And I was, <laughs> you're kidding no, me. No, 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 I am not. No, I, what? I did not yes, say that. Yes, on your- physical hold between my shoulder blades and that uh, I needed to, to work on that. And so I, I think that my third, my, like my third, uh, like show was with, um, it was the Norman Conquest and it was with uh, Patrice, I think. Yes. Yeah. And, and and so I spoke to her about it and I'm like, I need to work on this. And she's like, great, we, we'll, you know, we will do that. But that was it. Like, that was the only thing. And my GPA was like, like a 3.8 or a 3.9. Like I had like super high grades. So the day that I found out was I, um, they, they had just had their like big, uh, faculty powwow. Yeah. And so Don calls me right after and he's like, well, I told you so. He's like, you've been cut. And I was like, really? And he was like, yes. He's like, but you know what? He was like, it doesn't matter. (gasps) He's like, you're an actor. You're going to be totally fine. And I was like, Don, what do I do? And he's like, go, he's like, go to work, start auditioning. And then when you're ready, go back to school. You're going to be fine. And you know what? I mean, and I think I just chose to believe him. If you haven't listened to Blake's episode and you just heard that clip, you probably don't know that Blake went on after being cut to go to several other theater programs from which he graduated and actually is now running a department at SMU. Next up is Ed Ryan. You know, um, cause when I got my letter, it said, um, that I had three absences from voice and speech. And t- to this day, I say, no, I didn't. I would have never done that. Like I was pretty committed. She, I had a full frenum. So I was born like tongue tied. And she was like, I want you to go. I never had any speech issues. Um, But she's like, I want you to go see this doctor. So I went to see this doctor, Bastion. And uh, he was an ear, nose, and throat guy that worked with actors in Chicago. And he was like, oh, my God, let me clip it. He's like, I've never gotten to do one. What is it? What is it? You know, let me do it. And I was like, it's the little thing uh, underneath your tongue. So it's it actually tethers your tongue behind your bottom teeth. Like, everybody's develops that way. When you're born, it recedes. Um, if you're not, they usually just clip it when you're born, but they never discovered mine. And, um, so I wound up letting this doctor like do it. And then I had rehearsal for like my intro with Trudy. And I just remember meeting her in her office and her being like sticking her thumb in my mouth and being like, oh yeah, you have a significant overbite. Like, um, and just saying like, you know, you don't have a speech issue, but maybe if you got your tongue you know, released, it would change your speech. You know, let's, I would love to see what it does. You know, I just felt like I was pretty committed to it. And David was my acting teacher second year. And uh, in David's class, it was like, I could do no wrong. You know what I mean? I remember like almost hating it. Like um, him being like some, like, okay, you know, you'd critique each other's like scenes or improvs or whatever you were doing. And he would say, um, so who saw what, you know, Ed was doing and somebody was, you know, critiquing it and they were like, what do you, he was like, you know, what are you talking about? Like, he was like, he was fine. Like, he was like, my opinion's the only one that matters. So, you know, um, 
and just being like, okay, so now they hate Wait, me I, I have to say, I'm shocked uh, that, you know, usually the story is that the second year acting teacher hates your guts and then you get cut. Like that was my experience because um, I was cut and then asked back. Crazy, crazy. But, but it's right. interesting that David that thought you could do no wrong in your, as your acting teacher. Well, well it was really weird because I had David uh, and first quarter I was in David's intro and he gave me a better grade in my intro than he did in acting class. And I remember him saying to me, do you know why I did that? And me being like, yeah, right. <laughs> like, and really having no clue. But I remember, I remember getting into a fight with him in that rehearsal for that intro and him saying something to me and I'm like, okay, well, what, what, what do you want? And he was like, I don't know what, I, you know, just, you better try something else. Cause that's not working. Like he yelled at me and everybody was like, Oh, and David and I used to take these walks around the block at the theater school and have these little chats. And he was like, um, you know, he, he, he gave me every indication that he thought I was talented. And then I remember my second year, him saying to me, do you really want to be here for another two years? And I was like, well, yeah, you know, I really want a degree. And he was like, what are you going to get out of a Shakespeare class? Susan Lee? <laughs> and I remember, and I was like, I don't know. And then I remember um, telling him about my issues with Trudy and him being like, you know, Trudy. He's like, I'm the head of the voice and speech, which I didn't even, didn't really even know <laughs> at the time, you know, Such it was odd mess. to me that he was. And, and then, but then he gave me, but then he gave me a bad grade like in acting class. And so it was sort of like this, I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like what, you know, um, and I just, you know, ugly fact about theater is that it has historically been not diverse and not inclusive. That is only beginning to change very recently. The dial is shifting ever so slightly thanks to the hard work of changemakers, one of whom we interviewed. So take a listen to Justin Ross. To that, that story and it was just, it, it was beautiful um, to see you know, my class is the largest black acting class that the school has ever had in the history wow. of the Goodman School of Drama. Yeah, we have. Which is how eight, many? Eight, like, can you give us a sense of how many people? Mm -hmm, Twelve in my acting class. That's amazing. Yeah, and That's isn't amazing. that crazy? Yeah. yeah. Isn't that amazing. crazy? It's like, whoa. You know, and it's so, both crazy uh, that they didn't have this before. I mean, I, I'm sure you've heard. We had basically one. from the yeah, it was like one. They, it, it was almost like a a system designed to have one or two people of color. I mean, two. as you know, and Phyllis was our only professor of color. And, oh, yeah. and that, la to my knowledge, that lasted for quite some time. And 12, yes. uh, by the way, out of a hundred, did you, did you start with a hundred in your class? Then we have 32, Okay, 32 of us. And so 12 out of the 32. Um, and actually what you're saying during the Our Lady of Kibeho process you know, when I came in, I started um, an organization called the Black Artists of Today, which is the first affinity group the, the school has seen in its history as well. I was like, all these black, and I'm from Atlanta, it's black as hell here. So I was mm -hmm. just like, all these black people, I was like, no, we get in together. What are we doing? And we're stronger together. Um, and, you know, a lot of, and so we came together and for Kibeho, especially, we saw a lot of the 
unconscious bias and a lot of the um, aloof racism within that process. Black people learn differently. It's the truth. We, when you bring, a, that was a, that was an all black cast except for one white actor. We were, we were warming up with a dance. We were warming up with a djembe drum. That's not a process that usually people in the theater school go through. Right. And so they, they did not respect our process is the truth of it. We're stepping into this Rwandan dialect, these Rwandan people. So we need to step into the Rwandan music, the Rwandan, the, 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 the culture of community. That's what African, a lot of African cultures are about is that community creating rhythm in a dance. Like we had a whole dance that they would not allow us to do. There were just a lot of things that they were mm-hmm. like, we can't make time for that. We can't do this. And then Phyllis, watching Phyllis like have to like, surrender all of the kids in our class were like what the is going on like hell no like we and we had a whole moment where we were like phyllis has this been what you've been going through all of these years is this what you've been going through context to what the climate was like in the late 90s. Take a listen to Stephanie White. And then obviously material, material. Oh, man. Historically, there's nothing, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. what? Yeah, Stephanie, I know what do you remember, do you remember our scene? Our scene? <laughs> yes. Okay, yes. so Stephanie and I, for Don Ilko, found a scene. We were trying to find a scene for a Latina and a Black woman, okay? We found a scene. Good luck. There were no scenes. Right, like we found like, hello, hello. We did it. He Nothing. said, "This is shit. This is shit." And it was what shit. You, but it was shit. But we, but we found it. I mean, and then he, he continued, and then I just oh, like remember, the, the play was not well written. Is well, everything I mean? we were sh- like real super contemporary, and we yeah. tried to bring it like give it like a real fresh edge with like up to date music, and you know what I mean. And and we were just really trying to sincerely connect with what who we were as people and express ourselves through something other than like old white men from the 1800s or whatever these scripts right you know right. <laughs> i just remember crying i was crying yeah, we in both class, were falling in that falling class. because he's he was uh, what i heard was your shit mm-hmm. nothing exists for you and your mm-hmm. type right what is and this garbage and that's too bad. Yeah, that's too bad for you. You're an right. actress. You're supposed to be able to act. And it's like, but hey, uh-huh. I mean, what? <laughs> right. You know, yeah, I he, mean, he's, he wouldn't this have is not relevant. Right. He wouldn't have probably either been able to grasp this whole idea of like, it was his job to help you find material that both was you know an acting challenge for you but that also wasn't just completely outside of your experience and that you could bring something unique i mean it really among other things it's a missed opportunity to provide not just you but all of us with like anything outside new cutting edge you know i mean i understand we're talking about the fundamentals here you know from like a real basic building block way and i i appreciate that a hundred percent you got to have that in any game you're trying to play you know but but there needs to be 
some more uh, accessibility for creativity and uh, celebrating different experiences, not just, you know, I don't know. Right. Yeah, it hello, broke my heart. Hello, Dolly, or whatever. <laughs> it really, it really broke my heart, and it also propelled me to see. And it also, um, I felt really a lot closer to you. And then I felt yeah. like we were able to. Then we worked together on a different scene, and then we worked together in a kids show, Andrew Please and the Lion. Yes, yeah, and, and both felt- were expressive in that way. Yep, both mm-hmm. were expressive, and you know what? They both came from him. He picked that scene that we did, and he directed Androcles and the Lion. One of the many harmful effects of not having proper representation generally in theater and in theater school is that uh, students of color and students who are represent other oppressed voices have largely had to do the work, be the agents of change for institutions, which means that those college kids, let's say in this example, are both having to struggle with the experience of going to college, learning how to be an actor, and do all of this social work that really is not their responsibility. Uh, Take a listen to an interesting story from Leslie Ivory. Boz and I are very interested in like what's happening with people emotionally and psychologically while they're in school. Do you, did you know any like shifts for you in terms of your emotional, psychological well-being? Did it get challenged? I, uh, I had a really big shift. I, um, probably in January, so it would have been maybe halfway through our course. I, I, ooh, I had it out with a few people in my class because, um, so we were, we came into the new semester and we had a new project. So the project was that every year they put on they take a screenplay right and we'll do sections of the screenplay and we'll have costumes and we'll have a whole semester on just character analysis and we'll go to like a nice deep dive so we did the film bell have you seen that with, with gugu and batara mm-hmm. so it's a so it's a period piece and it's about it's set in like 1749 and it's in england and it's a black woman and she oh her, yes you, know, her, you saw it right so her yes. father is white and so her father brings her over to the family and so she's learn how to navigate this 18th century, you know, aristocracy as a black woman. And meanwhile, you know, there's like this big, um, her, her, her grandfather, he's a, like a Supreme Court judge. And so he's having to deal with this new case of the slave ship that was being drowned intensely or not. So he's having to preside over this case. So there are all of these, at the center of it is race. I mean, it's about her navigating this world. So this was the play we're going to do. There are two of us who are who are black women in the course. So the, our teachers were like, great, there's two women, they can handle it. And then everyone else, you know, will divvy it up. You choose your character, we'll go from there. So how it started was, um, actually, our course leader was on vacation during this time. So another teacher stepped in and um, he came to me. He said, okay, just for this project, we're actually going to open up this character of Dido, who is a black woman, to the rest of your female counterparts who are not of color at all. And, I, and, 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 would you, and, would, and would you mind sharing your experiences as a black woman to your to your classmate? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. And, let, and, and let me say this. The person, the, the teacher who was talking to me, I adore him. And immediately I was like, yes, of course, of course, because he's the person that you just, you know, you just do anything for because he's so mm-hmm. genuine. And he and I just really vibe and it's a great level. And then went home and then I was like, <laughs> wait a minute <laughs> I thought I called my dad and I was like 
some this isn't something's not this is not right this is not okay and so it was all like going home i was like screaming because i was like this because the thing about it is that sure i can share my experiences they don't they don't give a shit because what I learned was that they are more concerned with how many lines were in the play, who was the, or in the screen, who was the lead, who, you know, who gets to have the lead. So, so, you know, we, we went back to teacher and I said, no, um, you will not open it up to you, to my, my peers who are not of color. Cause this whole industry is built to exclude people of color. And if they feel excluded, then that's a, that's a lesson to be learned for them to take oh. on as they go out in the world. And so they said, okay, you know what? You're right. Let's, you're right. We'll close it off. So we closed it off and that's when shit hit the fan. So there were protests within our class of, well, well, why can't I play the lead role? It doesn't matter that she's black. Who cares? It isn't about race. Race isn't, doesn't matter. You know, why do you feel that? Why are you angry? Why do you feel that what you do? And, and what really got me was the fact that in explaining I shouldn't have had to explain myself, but in trying to explain to my classmates respectfully why this is an issue, instead of being heard, I was being, you know, pushed back and shouted at and not listened to. And that's, and that, that's, was the issue for me. There's one thing to, to, you know, to educate your your peers or to have a conversation. When you came and let me speak about my own experiences as a black woman, that's an issue for me. So it got to the point where um, we had, another person, another uh, employee at the school come into our classes. But at this point, our class was starting just to fracture. So she came into her classes to talk about empathy and race relations and what's okay and what's not okay. And it just blew up even further. And in a discussion where you think people would be like, oh, okay, we understand. It's hard for people of color in the world. No, it was, well, it's unfair because I should be getting this. I mean, it was just privilege. That's all it was, just privilege abound. Um, and and so they tried, we had several discussions, several discussions, and it just got worse and worse. And to the point where teachers just gave up and then we just kept going. And so at the end, so you know, we did the scenes and it was over. And at the, I remember at the end of the course, uh, I had a you know, talk with our course leader. And she's like, so do you think, you know, the, the class has gotten better, has gotten healed? I was like, no. I mean, we were so fractured after that. Absolutely not. Oh, and I'm sorry, before, right about a week before that all that happened, we were filming um, a scene. So you get to, you have a partner and you can choose what on-camera scene you're going to do. Uh, someone decided to film a scene from Django oh, Unchained. No. Oh no! Oh no! Oh no! So I just—you're <laughs> cringing no. because you all know what's coming. So I just so happened to sit next to the the other the my fellow you know black woman who's in the course. We just happened to speak by each other because I think we have partners in the scene or something. And um, and she said, she looked at me. She said, "Did I just hear the N word?" I was like, "No, <gasps> I would have heard that." She's like, "Okay." So we go on rehearsal lines, and then we hear it. <laughs> <laughs> and I like hit her and she just looks at me and we just and we just like just stop oh my god and so finally they, they saw and it's a short scene granted but I should you not they said it at least like seven times in this yes because but in the whole movie Tarantino. I think it's said like 200 times like I mean not that that's an excuse but that's to be expected so they end this scene and money this is with our tutor I mean our instructor you know this is all the whole class is here and so they end, and we were like, what just happened? And the response was, oh, well, it's just a movie. So one of the gentlemen was from Croatia, and the other was from, I think, Colombia. Um, 
but it was just well it's just a film so what's the big deal that was the first response to us saying do you not see an issue with this that was the very first thing to be said so this is how it started and then after all of that started was everything with the movie with bell so so this had been several months of this class and so and and i think that's probably why i also was grateful for us moving online because that also meant that I no longer had to be in the same room as all this talk these toxic people who didn't value me as a person who asked me repeatedly to push away aside my identity for sake of a class exercise you know <laughs> so and like so if I can if I had to you know this pandemic has been so so hard and people but if it meant that I could be home and in a safe I was I was not safe that's the thing I was not in a safe place yeah and I, I did not feel open. I didn't feel supported by my my peers. So how could I be trained as a better actor if I don't even feel like I'm in a safe space to get my best self? Of course, I'm going to shut down and close off because you 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 all shown yourselves to me. But that being said, that in itself taught me so much because that was kind of the first real awakening that I've had about myself and my relationship with racial identity, um, and others. Mm. And I think you know, screw acting training, screw movement lying on the floor. That was a class in itself, right? And how I'm going to enter the world, especially in this industry. And that taught me all I needed to know and how to handle it, how to go forward. And, and, you know, Brit, I was just going to say our guest Bridget Quibido talked a lot about trauma and, and how that really um, her body work that she got into at the theater school with Patrice Eggleston, I believe, was the main person. Right. And that really freed her up to then go on. She left to Paul, but then she went on to to you know, do mega Feldenkrais work and more acting and now is a therapist that also, I believe, integrates some some of that stuff into her therapy when she's working with clients. So I it's interesting, like she when she was talking about trauma stored in the body, like even I in my head was kind of not poo-pooing it, but I just I you know, people always talk about the body remembers, but I really get it now. Like I yeah. really after this last sort of thing with me, it's like, I can see how it, it, it is, um, right. We don't look at it maybe, or we're starting to, you know, with these books and people are saying uh, all kinds of things now it's coming out, but like, you know, growing up, there was no, there was no connection to the body. And I think at the theater school, they were trying to get us to do that, but it's like, how do you connect to your body when your body is so filled with trauma? Right. And also, like, in a way, I, I have a slightly more nuanced understanding. Like, we've spent a lot of time talking about they should have done this and they should have done that. And there are so many people who were in so much psychological pain. And that kind of stuff came out in voice and speech and movement class. And, you know, we were talking about, like, everybody should have had a therapist or there should. And all of that is true. But at the same time, if you if you opened yourself up to that idea, then like it's it is like being in a residential treatment program, and that yeah, that it's a full time job, and that can't be what your theater school is. I mean, that's really not their job. So I'm saying this to say, like, as much time as I've spent lamenting how unsupported we all were, I also deeply understand why why that had to be the case in certain cases. 
Yes. And I, I can as well. It's just, it's like, it is so challenging for me to get to the point they want us. It was so hard for me to get to the point where I think they wanted us to get. There were so many roadblocks in the way emotionally and physically that it's almost, uh, at, at least for people with complicated trauma histories, an insurmountable task to become a great actor in a theater conservatory when you've got all these roadblocks and trauma that has nothing to do with the teachers. Right. But they just triggered it. So like it's a landmine situation. And I think the people, the people who did really well were people who either can totally compartmentalize like a hundred percent. Like I'm not saying they didn't have trauma. I'm saying they were able to say, okay, either consciously or probably unconsciously at 17, 18, I'm not going to go there because uh, I, I they they recognize maybe and they were just like nope this is about get becoming a famous actor that's what I'm doing here yeah and or there are people like me and perhaps you who are like just so checked out that we didn't even know the depths of trauma that that was in our bodies and or we did and we just couldn't or there were people that just uh freaked out and had to leave right or or were asked to leave because of because of those roadblocks so i feel like there's like different paths you can take to get through an experience like that and you know the people who really were quote successful i think were people that either a didn't like i said didn't have the trauma or were able to totally compartmentalize have to it because you can't scare or shame somebody into developing a sense of self and, and you can't develop it for them. You know, it's an, it's an offer. Does anybody have that born with that? Does that get created? Like, do, were we the only, I mean, <laughs> I think, you know, Jen, Jen, the thing I, you know, I've talked to, and we'll kind of get to how all this played out, but I ended up talking to Phyllis. I, I ended up presenting at the Feldenkrais conference in Chicago about 10 years ago. And Phyllis was in my class, which is so funny. And so she took me out and took me to a place she was directing and we talked a lot. And then spoke since then because I do, and I haven't prioritized it with just life and everything else I've prioritized, but I'm very, very interested in the psychological health of people in theater conservatories specifically, um, obviously, because I, you know, I'm, I'm invested yeah. in that. Um, and I, I spoke with her a bit and, and I spoke with the head of acting at CalArts a bit and, and where I'm coming from and looking at this when you say, Jen, does, does everybody, does anybody have this? My guess, and I have nothing to base this on except a, a, a I feel educated guess that almost everybody in these theater programs has unresolved trauma. And what are we doing as a faculty, as an institution to address the unresolved trauma? I mean, I think more and more that's likely becoming part of programs. I don't know that. I know DePaul stopped cutting people, which my goodness, I talk about like activating unresolved trauma for people, threaten to kick them out. Um, so, oh my gosh. Yes. So any, it is something I'm very interested in. All right. After that deep discussion, I'm going to take a right turn here. I want to end the episode with a grab bag of fun little highlights that didn't necessarily fit into the theme for for this for this episode but um that I we wanted to include in any case so please enjoy 
stories from Kevin Fox, Jen Ellison, Jonas Avery, and Dawn Vanessa Brown. Really amazing in that showcase. Like I kind of, you know, destroyed the room with it. It was, it was everything you could ever want uh, in terms of how it went. And lots of people wanted to talk to me. And I went to meetings with lots of people and my friends. So I was, it was, it was a fun time. I was out there with my friends, PJ and Siler, um, and, uh, and Amy, I mean, the whole class is out there, but you know, we were all hanging out and they were all excited for me that I got to go to these meetings. And I still remember kind of what I wore to most of them. And it was just a, an error. I wish someone had, I wish someone had been like, <laughs> no, 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 don't, 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 don't wear that. Don't wear that. Uh, but it was, you know, <laughs> it was what I had and it seemed like a nice thing to I wear. I felt fancy in it. Um, but all the meetings were, and sometimes I would, the meeting would be with the person who actually saw me. And other times it would be somebody who worked for that person, but almost all the meetings were like, so when are you coming out here? And I was like, uh, I'm a theater actor in Chicago. Like, but you know, like, what do you want me to do? You know, like I'm here now and I can, you know, I may come out here again. And I, I don't know why I thought those meetings were going to go any differently. And they're like, okay, we'll give us a call when you come out here. And I remember writing postcards to all those people, like with my horrible handwriting, writing postcards and sending them to those people, none of whom interacted with me. Of course, why would you? Um, <clears throat> but in <laughs> what are they going to do? Write me a postcard back? Been thinking about you, Kevin. You're Kevin. We we we're you. dying for you to move back to LA. We're short, short on, on actors. actors. Yeah. Um, but I met uh, in Chicago. Anyway, uh, so yes, I teach. Um, so I don't teach in the theater school at DePaul, which I think is really funny. Um, <laughs> I teach in the communications school. Um, I teach screenwriting um, and uh, in various forms. Um, for a while, for about seven years, I taught ethics in uh, video game and cinema until they realized I didn't have... Wow of moral philosophy degree. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Did we forget something here? <laughs> I don't know. Well, it was funny because I saw it for like seven years. And then one day I got an email from them saying, by the way, we don't think you have a degree in this, do you? And I went, um, no, I just was told to teach this class. So I did. And then, <laughs> and I actually got oh really God. good at it. And then they were like, we can't, sorry. And I was like, <gasps> that out. I get it. You, you want somebody who has a degree in the thing they're teaching and didn't just wow. teach it to themselves in order to. Yeah. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What you're, if I'm understanding what you're saying, <laughs> mm -hmm, you got a job teaching a, 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 something that you knew you didn't have a degree to teach and then you just taught it to yourself. Oh my God. That's amazing. That's brilliant. You should, they actually should have promoted you to the head of the ethics department. With, with, with running on empty. So uh, I was doing coastal disturbances at the time and we, all of us, I mean, our, everybody in that show was getting auditions that we had, they were coming out of, everybody was coming to, they wanted us. We, we were, we were a hot ticket. Um, and like super, movie stars were coming to see us directors were coming to see us people were like okay and obviously annette was the one who flew off the charts and started working gangbusters um but uh for me 
I got an audition. I guess Sidney Lumet came and saw it and wanted me for this film, but they were still working out the other characters. And they had hired uh, – River was like the first person hired. And then Christine Lottie came later, and they didn't want to – they wanted to hire me, but they didn't think that I looked enough like them. So they they, they were sort of like – they kept bringing me back, and finally my mother called and said uh, – or she had the agent call and say, don't keep bringing Jonas Avery back in if you're not going to offer it to him. And then we got a call that I didn't get it. And then uh, I guess what happened ended up happening is they got Judd to play the dad, and they realized that I could be Judd's son, and that's when they were like, okay, we can bring Jonas in. And so I, that's how that worked. Uh, and it was, a, it was a great experience, but it was just, you know, the thing, things were a lot, a lot of fun. River was, was a great big brother. I was a, I was, I'm an only child, and he treated me like a big brother uh, in good ways and in bad ways. Uh, he treated me no different than his uh, littlest sister, Summer Joy, was there. And so uh, she, he, he would, we would, I remember there was one point when he, Martha Plimpton, and I were rehearsing over a, on, let's say it's like 19th Street and Broadway. Uh, and we would, I, I had these, someone would give me at Coastal these water balloons uh, that looked like grenades. And we were filling up water balloons and dropping them on people. And especially River wanted to make sure that we were dropping them on people wearing business suits. Out of, out of a, a black neighborhood, you know, I mean, it was like, where, where, where do I fit? So I did what any, any, any smart person would do. I sold all my possessions, um, tried to shore up some bills, and I moved to the Caribbean. I moved to St. John. Plot twist. I would, did not see that coming. Okay. I did not either. I moved to St. John. I took a preliminary trip because I thought that's what I, because I had taken a vacation and I had gotten to know some local people and I thought they do nothing all day. Their jobs are nothing. I have been working like a dog. I'm going to the Caribbean. It was as simple as that. And I quickly found out, because I actually researched this and did do it, um, any island that's not the United States, you need to have a round-trip ticket because they don't want anybody dropping out of society in their island. They got enough, and which is exactly what I was going to do. Um, but I ended up going and, and finding that St. John was what I needed to do. Um, I started out living in a tent. Uh, on a t- on a campground, and you could live there for a month, and then uh, you could find another place to live for a week, and then you could go back to the campground for a month. And um, as long as I kept my my clothes uh, free of mildew, I was okay. I mean, I I lived uh, right a few steps from the beach. Uh, there were wild donkeys. There were land. What are they called? Land crabs. Have you ever heard of land crabs? The huge yes. ones. Yeah. Oh, uh-huh. All of them. Yeah. And I became friends with the guy who ran the place. Um, well, we, 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 and, and I, I had the most ridiculous blissful time. I worked for a couple of crazy AA members who lived on St. Thomas by the way, St. Thomas is extremely dangerous. Don't go there. And they lived on St. Thomas and they would come by, they would come by the ferry and um, they would open up, they owned a string of, of, of t-shirt shops. And I worked with Caribbean women at the t-shirt shop. And the first day I was like, they're like, girl, what you doing? Sit down. 
Lewis is not going to be here. He took the bus. And then he'll go with the dollar man. And the dollar man will take him all around the island. Girl, sit down. What you doing? And then they would steal. <laughs> and you're like, yes, finally, I'm getting a real education. You're like, here, you, you, you're in a gift for family? Take these. And I, I supplied my family with a lot of sweatshirts. <laughs> and St. John taught me a huge lesson that I thought I was escaping. And the bigotry, like bigotry never leaves. There was a huge, you had this wonderful island and they called it paradise. Everybody lived like a hippie. I finally found, oh God, another story. I finally found a roommate. Her name was Joycelyn and she's 50 years old. And I said, hi, Joycelyn. What what are you doing? She said, oh, I'm having a nervous breakdown here. Would you like to, um, you want to share an apartment? And I'm so naive. I was like, yeah. I was like, yeah, great, Joycelyn. What could be wrong? She looked like a mom. And I said, but wait a minute. She didn't have, she had a teenage daughter. She didn't have custody of her daughter because the father had it. And I said, well, well, Joycelyn, why are you here? She said, well, I was running meth. And one time, you know, I got stopped by the Texas Rangers and they said, ma'am, can we ask you what is in the back of your car? I said, she said, sure, officer, I'm running meth. I got a whole case of meth in the back of my car. And they laughed because she was white and looked simple. And they let her go. It's Gina just jumping on at the end here to say if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast and also please leave us a five star review. If you feel so inclined, if you really love us, please write a review. Having those reviews, whether they're good or not, helps us with our algorithm in the matrix of it all. So it would be greatly appreciated. I Survive Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth-Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or any other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks! So I've never asked any, I don't think we've ever asked any, any of our guests this question, so I'm going to ask it to you. Is there anything you really miss about theater school, about when you were there? Yeah, I miss the feeling of only having one thing to do, which was go to school and experience one thing at a time. There was a lot of freedom in that. I was thinking about that today. I was like, what is the nostalgic? Like, what? why do I like? Because there's another part of it that's really nostalgic for me of thinking about the theater school. I'm like, what is that? I was thinking about this morning when, when I knew we were talking and I was like, that's it. It's like, it's like camp. The same thing I miss about camp, which is you, you, you show up at this one place, right? That building on Kenmore and you're going to be there all day and all night but then you go home, but you know that it's contained in that yeah. space, 
Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and we were still in the position where people were telling us what to do. And there is a certain kind of freedom in that as much as we re- you know, would have probably railed against it at the time. There is, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Like you, I didn't know how I felt my life was as complicated as it would ever be then. And now I understand it was as simple as it would ever be. Right. And I just remember things that, you know, things that seemed so upsetting, right? So upsetting. And they were upsetting at the time, but I'm like, okay, this is, but you you, like, um, I'm just thinking of like when a boy, you know, I liked, didn't like me or when I didn't get a role, but even that, because my self-esteem was so low, I never expected to get any good roles. So, but but when a boy I thought liked me, you know, didn't like me at the theater school or like, liked someone else, I really thought that was going to be the worst pain I ever felt in my life. Can you imagine? We were saying to ourselves, when I'm an adult, I'm not going to have any of these problems. I'm going to buy whatever I want and do it. Yeah. Oh my God. We were so dumb. We were so dumb, you know, but like, I think everyone is that way. I, I don't know in some ways. And in fact, if you're not that sort of dumb, you might be in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. You might be in trouble. Yeah. The thing that I miss the most, or one of the things that I miss the most about that time is I had so much time to sit around and laugh with people. I loved that. I, and I had that, you know, in my twenties to some degree, but I haven't had, it's been a long time since it was a part of my everyday life to be among my peers and just sit down and have a good laugh. I agree. I think that's fantastic. And the other thing I remember is this was so funny. And Alex Scooby is someone who I've reached out to a bunch and just never responded back. Yeah. But um, Alex Scooby after movement to music once, this is the best. So I I was so thirsty and he had a seven up. I remember. And I, I said, can I have a sip? And I took it and I drank the whole thing. And he was so mad at me. He was so angry at me. I couldn't help myself. And he was like, it would became this big thing. But now looking back and he was kind of, you know, it was Alex Scooby. He was like a very dramatic. He was like, that is really not cool. I'm like, he got crazy. <laughs> oh, and, oh or like Christine Crociata on the pants, you in know, the pants. Yeah. I, uh, you're going to love just listening. Cause I've got a lot of these, you know, just really funny stories. I have Shana's story about the pubes. Oh my God. Oh, the pubes. <laughs> I have Larry's story about choosing to go to his, <laughs> choosing to a different monologue while he was on his way to his audition. Um, that is brilliant. That I is have, amazing. You're doing this. So amazing. When Eric Slater went to Bella's <laughs> office and she said, I didn't want you. <laughs> ah, it's fantastic. Why? Why didn't I get cat? I didn't want you in my play. I, I didn't want you in my play. <laughs> By the way, thinking about that and talking about Bella, I mean, I think she was always a badass, but that is something I look forward to in even later life feeling even more and more free to just say it extremely plainly exactly like it is without you know yeah and the I I have this feeling of like I wish I had spent more time with her yeah 
Mm-hmm. I didn't know shit about like, mm-hmm. and I think that comes with age too. And just like, I thought she was an old stodgy lady that was mean and kind of grumpy and, and oh yeah, she had some history, but who cares about that? I'm into now. I wish mm-hmm. I had really taken full advantage of the, the, of her, of her brilliance. I just, I was scared. Yeah. And also it, I didn't really feel free at the theater school to approach teachers I didn't have. Yeah. As an, as t- to talk to them. So yeah, me neither. Anyway. Um, so I want to, that question about what do you miss? I want to ask that of our guests going forward. Yes. I want to ask more people. I'm thinking about the things that we didn't talk about with people. I sure. want to ask people about if they remember their private moment exercise. <gasps> yeah. Did we all have that or just Don's class? Well, a lot of us had Don. So I okay. at least want to ask people. Oh, that was crazy. I want to ask people about, um, uh, we've talked to many people about movement to music, but not everybody. I want to get everybody's temperature on that. Um, and I want to talk about what people thought of the work because we really haven't spent any time talking about like, I mean, when we've had individual people on, we've said that they, we really like certain things they did, but like, did people feel when they saw the work excited that they were going to this school or mm. was it a, or not, or was it a mixed bag? I mean, I'm sure for most people it was a mixed bag, but um, I had several moments of like, wow, there's a lot of talent here. You know, I had several like inspirational moments. We don't talk to people very much about watching each other's work. Mm, you know, that is a great thing to ask people. Great. I I think that's very insightful that you thought of that because I did have those moments too. Like I remember watching, oh my God, it was um, the commitments. Was that, it was, no, the road. I don't know. Some, some. British situation that I remember Mike Dunn was in in a in a in the movement to music room and it was a workshop it was the greatest and I can't remember what it was it was something that they later made into a movie uh, hmm. so good and it was a it was ensemble cast so funny I remember the accents being so good so I had those moments mostly in workshops me too me too. The, the The experience I had a lot more about main stage shows was the spectacle of it, how beautiful the costumes were. And, you know, and, and I'm mean, not to say that there wasn't a lot of great performances, but you got a be- much better chance to have that real raw kind of emotional experience in the workshop. Like in your face, you know, like mm-hmm. right in your face. That was yeah. so, so great. So yeah, that's a great question yeah. to ask guests. Yeah. Okay. Anything else that you want to say about these last 50 episodes or what you want to get out of the next 50? I just really want to continue exploring how we end up where we end up. And is there, what is the benefit of looking back and, um, and, and why, and just keep asking like, for me like where does the healing come from like is it from the reliving the thing is it from talking about it but like I I'm really I I love at first my really big thing was about resilience right but now I'm really interested in healing like in a true sense healing not just putting a band-aid not just but like what does it mean to heal so that's where I'm headed 